Chapter Five of Black Ivory by R. M. Ballantyne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Five, in which the travelers enjoy themselves extremely, and Disco Lillehammer sees several astonishing sights. Behold our travelers, then, fairly embarked on the waters of the great African river Zambezi, in two canoes, one of which is commanded by Harold Seadrift, the other by Disco Lillehammer. Of course these enterprising chiefs were modest enough at first to allow two of the Makololo men, Jumbo and Zombo, to wield the steering oars, but after a few days' practice they became sufficiently expert, as Disco said, to take the helm, except when strong currents rendered the navigation difficult, or when the weather became so piping hot that none but men clad in black skins could work. We must, however, guard the reader here from supposing that it is always piping hot in Africa. There are occasional days when the air may be styled lukewarm, when the sky is serene, and when all nature seems joyful and enjoyable days in which a man opens his mouth wide and swallows down the atmosphere, when he feels his health and strength and rejoices in them, and when, if he be not an infidel, he also feels a sensation of gratitude to the giver of all good. On such a day soon after entering the East Wava mouth of the Zambezi, the explorers, for such we may almost venture to style them, ascended the smooth stream close to the left bank, Harold leading, Disco following closely in his wake. The men rode gently, as if they enjoyed the sweet calm of early morning, and were unwilling to disturb the innumerable flocks of wildfowl that chuckled among the reeds and sedges everywhere. Harold sat in the stern, leaning back, and only dipping the steering oar lazily now and then to keep the canoe from running on the bank or plunging into a forest of gigantic rushes. Disco, having resolved to solace himself with a whiff of his darling pipe, had resigned the helm to Jumbo, and laid himself in a position of comfort which admitted of his resting his head on the gunwale in such a manner that, out of the corners of his eyes, he could gaze down into the water. The part of the river they had reached was so perfectly still that every cloud in the sky, every mangrove, root and spray, and every bending bulrush was perfectly reproduced in the reflected world below. Plaintive cries of wildfowl formed appropriate melody, to which chattering groups of monkeys and croaking bullfrogs contributed a fine tenor and bass. "'Hello, Disco!' exclaimed Harold in a subdued key, looking over his shoulder. "'Aye, aye, sir!' sighed the seaman, without moving his position. "'Range up alongside. I want to speak to you.' "'Aye, aye, sir!' "'Jumbo, you black-faced villain, d'ye hear that? Give way and go longside.' Good-humored Jumbo spoke very little English, but had come to understand a good deal during his travels with Dr. Livingston. He wrinkled his visage and showed his brilliant teeth on receiving the order. Muttering a word to the men and giving a vigorous stroke, he shot up alongside of the leader's canoe. "'You seem comfortable,' said Harold with a laugh, as Disco's vast visage appeared at his elbow. I is. Isn't this jolly? continued Harold. No, sir, taint. Why, what do you mean? I means that jolly ain't the word by a long way, fur to express the nature of my feelings. There ain't no word as I knows on as I'd come up to it. If I wore a philosopher now, I'd coin a word for the occasion. 
"'Perhaps,' continued Disco, drawing an unusually long whiff from his pipe, "'perhaps, not being a philosopher, I might nevertheless try to coin one. What's the Latin now, for heaven?' "'Selem,' replied Harold. "'Selem, huh? And what's the earth?' "'Terra.' "'Terra. Well, now, what ridiculous names to give to em,' said Disco, shaking his head gravely. "'I can't see why the ancients couldn't have been satisfied with the name that we'd given em. However,' that's neither here nor there my notion over the state of things that we've got into here as they now stand is that they are salem terracious which means heaven upon earth d'ee see as disco pronounced the word with a powerful emphasis on the u m part of it the sound was rather effective and seemed to please him say you're right or nearly so replied harold but don't you think the word savors too much of perfection seeing that breakfast would add to the pleasure of the present delightful state of things and make them even more salem than they are no sir no the word ain't too perfect replied disco with a look of critical severity part of it is arth and arth is imperfect being susceptible of a many improvements among which undoubtedly is breakfast likewise dinner and supper to say nothing of lunch and tea which is suitable only for babies and women so I agree with you, sir, that the state of things will be Salem Terraciers if we goes ashore and has breakfast. He tapped the head of his very black little pipe on the edge of the canoe and heaved a sigh of contentment as he watched the ash ball that floated away on the stream. Then, rousing himself, he seized the steering oar and followed Harold into a small creek which was pleasantly overshadowed by the rich tropical foliage of that region. While breakfast was being prepared by Antonio, whose talents as chef de cuisine were of the highest order, Harold took his rifle and rambled into the bush in search of game. Any kind of game, for at that time he had had no experience whatever of the sport afforded by the woods of tropical Africa, and having gathered only a few vague ideas from books, he went forth with all the pleasurable excitement and expectation that we may suppose peculiar to discoverers. Disco Lillehammer, having only consumed his first pipe of tobacco, and holding it to be a duty which he vowed to himself to consume two before breakfast, remained at the campfire to smoke and chaff Antonio, whose good nature was only equaled by his activity. "'What have ye got there?' inquired Disco, as Antonio poured a quantity of seed into a large pot. "'Dis, vi, himsby mapira,' replied the interpreter, with a benignant smile him's the chief food of this country it must be remarked here that antonio's english having been acquired from all sorts of persons in nearly every tropical part of the globe was somewhat of a jumble being a compound of the broken english spoken by individuals among the germans french portuguese arabs and negroes with whom he had at various times associated modified by his own ignorance and seasoned with a dash of his own inventive fancy is it good asked disco good exclaimed antonio being unable to find words to express himself the enthusiastic cook placed his hand on the region which was destined ere long to become a receptacle for the mapira and rolled his eyes upwards in rapture ha who shall see behind long before long you mean observed the seaman dat all the same thing so long's you understand him replied antonio complacently bring water now jumbo Put him in careful, not spill on de fire. Zo, good. Jumbo filled up the kettle carefully 
and a broad grin overspread his black visage, partly because he was easily tickled into a condition of risibility by the cool off-hand remarks of Disco Lillehammer, and partly because, having acquired his own small spattering of English from Dr. Livingston, he was intelligent enough to perceive that in regard to Antonio's language there was something peculiar. "'Now, go fetch another kittle. Quick. "'Yes, sir, so good,' replied Jumbo, mimicking the interpreter, and going off with a vociferous laugh at his little joke, in which he was joined by his sable clansmen, Masiko and Zambo. "'Him's got enough of impotence,' said the interpreter, as he bustled about his avocations. "'He's not the only one that's got more than enough impotence,' said Disco, pushing a fine straw down the stem of his cutty to make it draw better. I say, Tony, our regardless seaman had already thus mutilated his name. You seem to have plenty livestock in them parts. Plenty what? inquired the interpreter, with a perplexed expression. Why, plenty birds and beasts. Livestock, we calls it, meaning thereby living creatures. He pointed towards an opening in the mangroves through which were visible the neighboring mud and salt flats, swarming with wild fowl and conspicuous among which were large flocks of pelicans, who seemed to be gorging themselves comfortably from an apparently inexhaustible supply of fish in the pools left by the receding tide. Oh yes, me perceive, yes, plenty bird and beast, fishes too, and crabs, look, there. He pointed to a part of the sands nearest to their encampment which appeared to be alive with some small creatures. "'That's curious,' said Disco, removing his pipe and regarding the phenomenon with some interest. "'No tank chorus, it's crabs,' replied Antonio. "'Crabs, is it?' said Disco, rising and sauntering down to the sands, for he possessed an inquiring mind with a special tendency to investigate the habits, pranks as he called them, of the lower animals which in other circumstances might have made him a naturalist. Muttering to himself, he was fond of muttering to himself, it felt companionable. Curious, very curious, quite extraordinary. He crept stealthily to the edge of the mangroves, and there discovered that the sands were literally alive with myriads of minute crabs, which were actively engaged, it was supposed by those who ought to know best, in gathering their food. The moment the tide ebbed from any part of the sands, out came these crablets in swarms, and set to work, busy as bees, ploughing up the sand and sifting it, apparently for food, until the whole flat was rendered rough by their incessant labors. Approaching cautiously, Disco observed that each crab, as he went along sideways, gathered a round bit of moist sand at its mouth, which was quickly brushed away by one of his claws, and replaced by another and another as fast as they could be brushed aside. "'Eatin' sand they are,' muttered Disco in surprise." but presently the improbability of sand being very nutritious food, even for crabs, forced itself on him, and he muttered his conviction that they was scraping for victuals. Having watched the crabs a considerable time and observed that they frequently interrupted their labors to dart suddenly into their holes and out again, for the purpose, he conjectured, of having a drop of summit to wet their whistles, Disco thrust the cutty into his vest pocket, and walked a little further out on the flat in the hope of discovering some new objects of interest. Nor was he disappointed. Besides finding that the pools left by the tide swarmed with varieties of little fish, many of them being curious, he was fortunate enough to witness a most surprising combat. It happened thus. 
Perceiving a little to his right some small creature hopping about on the sand near to a little pool, he turned aside to observe it more closely. On his drawing near, the creature jumped into the pool. Disco advanced to the edge, gazing intently into the water, and saw nothing except his own reflected image at the bottom. Presently the creature reappeared. It was a small fish, a familiar fish, too, which he had known in the pools of his native land by the name of Blenny. As the Blenny appeared to wish to approach the edge of the pool, Disco retired, and, placing a hand on each knee, stooped in order to make himself as small as possible. He failed, the diminution in his height being fully counterbalanced by the latitudinal extension of his elbows. Presently the Blenny put its head out of the water and looked about. We speak advisedly. The Blenny is altogether a singular and exceptional fish. It can and does look sidewise, upwards and downwards, with its protruding eyes, as knowingly and with as much vivacity as if it were a human being. This power in a fish has something of the same awesome effect on an observer as might possibly result were a horse to raise its head and smile at him. Seeing that the coast was clear, for Disco stood as motionless as a mangrove tree, Blenny hopped upon the dry land. The African Blenny is a sort of amphibious animal, living nearly as much out of the water as in it. Indeed its busiest time, we are told, note, see Dr. Livingston's Zambezi and its tributaries, page 843, end of note is at low water when by means of its pectoral fins it crawls out on the sand and raises itself into something of a standing attitude, with its bright eyes keeping a sharp lookout for the light-colored flies on which it feeds. For several seconds Disco gazed at the fish, and the fish gazed around, even turning its head a little, as well as its eyes on this side and on that. Presently a small fly, with that giddy heedlessness which characterizes the race, alighted about two inches in front of Blenny's nose. Instantly the fish leaped that vast space, alighted with its underset mouth just over the fly, which immediately rose into it, and was entombed. Bravo! passed through Disco's brain, but no sound issued from his lips. Presently another of the giddy ones alighted in front of Blenny about a foot distant. This appeared to be much beyond his leaping powers, for with a slow, stealthy motion like a cat he began deliberately to stalk his victim. The victim appeared to be blind, for it took no notice of the approaching monster. Blenny displayed marvelous powers of self-control, for he moved on steadily without accelerating his speed until within about two inches of his prey. Then he leapt as before, and another fly was entombed. "'Well done!' exclaimed Disco, mentally, but still his lips and body were motionless as before. At this point an enemy in the shape of another Blenny appeared on the scene. It came up out of a small pool close at hand and seemed to covet the first Blenny's pool, and to set about taking possession of it as naturally as if it had been a human being, for observing no doubt that its neighbor was busily engaged it moved quietly in the direction of the coveted pool. Being a very little fish, it was not observed by Disco, but it was instantly noticed by the first Blenny, which, being rather the smaller of the two, we shall style the little one. Suddenly Big Blenny threw off all disguise, bounded towards the pool, which was about a foot square, and plunged in. 
no mortal blenny could witness this unwarrantable invasion of its hearth and home without being stirred to indignant wrath with eyes that seemed to flash fire and dorsal fin bristling up with rage little blenny made five tremendous leaps of full three inches each and disappeared another moment and a miniature storm ruffled the pool for a few seconds the heavings of the deep were awful then out jumped big blenny and tried to flee but out jumped little blenny and caught him by the tail round turned the big one and caught the other by the jaw hello disco breakfast ready where are you shouted harold from the woods disco replied not it is a question whether he heard the hail at all so engrossed was he in this remarkable fight bravo he exclaimed aloud when little blenny shook his big enemy off and rolled him over cleverly done he shouted when big blenny with a dark took refuge in the pool i knowed it he cried approvingly when little blenny forced him a second time to evacuate the premises go in and win little un thought disco thus the battle raged furiously now in the water now on the sand while the excited seamen danced round the combatants both of whom appeared to have become deaf and blind with rage and gave them strong encouragement mingled with appropriate advice and applause in fact disco's delight would have been perfect had the size of the belligerents admitted of his patting the little blenny on the back but this of course was out of the question at last having struck worried bitten and chased each other by land and sea for several minutes these pugnacious creatures seized each other by their respective throats like two bulldogs and fell exhausted on the sand it's a draw exclaimed disco rather disappointed no taint he said as little blenny reviving rose up and renewed the combat more furiously than ever but it was soon ended for big blenny suddenly turned and fled to his own pool little blenny did not crow he did not even appear to be elated he evidently felt that he had been called on to perform a disagreeable but unavoidable duty and deemed it quite unnecessary to wave banners fire guns or ring bells in celebration of his victory as he dived back into his pool amid the ringing cheers of disco lillihammer upon my word if you have not gone stark mad you must have had a sunstroke said harold coming forward what's the matter too late too late cried disco in a mingled tone of amusement and regret do ye think it is are you incurable already asked his friend too late to see the most astonishing scrimmage i ever did behold in my life said disco the description of this scrimmage gave the worthy seaman a subject for conversation and food for meditation during the greater part of the time spent over the morning meal and there is no saying how long he would have kept referring to and chuckling over it to the great admiration and sympathy of the black fellows who are as a race excessively fond of jocularity and fun had not another of the denizens of the mangrove jungle diverted his attention and thoughts rather suddenly this was a small monkey which seated on a branch overhead peered at the breakfast party from among the leaves with an expression of inquiry and of boundless astonishment that it is quite impossible to describe surprise of the most sprightly nature if we may say so sat enthroned on that small monkey's countenance an expression which was enhanced by the creature's motions for not satisfied with taking a steady look at the intruders from the right side of a leaf it thrust forward its little black head on the left side of it and then under it by way of variety but no additional light seemed to result from these changes in the point of observation 
for the surprise did not diminish. In one of its intense stares it caught the eye of Disco. The seaman's jaws stopped as if suddenly locked and his eyes opened to their widest. The monkey seemed to feel uneasily that it had attracted attention, for it showed the smallest possible glimpse of its teeth. The action, coupled with the leafy shadows which fell on its countenance, had the effect of a smile, which caused Disco to burst into a loud laugh and point upwards. To bound from its position to a safer retreat, and then stare at Disco with deep indignation and a threatening display of all its teeth and gums, in addition to its looks of surprise, was the work of a moment on the part of the small monkey, whereat Disco burst into a renewed roar of laughter, in which he was joined by the whole party. "'Are there many o' them fellows hereabouts?' inquired the seaman of Antonio. "'Oh, yes, lots of them. Thousands everywheres. See, there are more he pointed to another part of the umbracious canopy overhead, where the face of a still smaller monkey was visible, engaged like the previous one in an earnest scrutiny of the party, but with a melancholy rather than a surprised expression of visage. "'What a miserable broken-hearted thing,' said Disco, grinning, in which act he was immediately copied by the melancholy monkey, though from different motives. Disco was very fond of monkeys, all his life he had felt a desire to pat and fondle those shivering creatures which he had been accustomed to see on barrel-organs in his native land, and the same strong impulse came over him now. "'What a pity the critters smell so bad, and ain't cleanly,' he remarked, gazing affectionately up among the leaves. "'They'd make such capital pets. Why, there's another!' This remark had reference to a third monkey, of large dimensions and fierce countenance, which at that moment rudely thrust the melancholy monkey aside and took its place. The latter, with a humble air and action, took up a new position, somewhat nearer to the fire, where its sad countenance was more distinctly seen. "'Well, it does seem a particularly sorrowful monkey, that,' said Harold, laughing, as he helped himself to another canful of tea. "'The most miserable object I ever did see,' observed Disco. The negroes looked at each other and laughed. They were accustomed to monkeys and took little notice of them, but they were mightily tickled by Disco's amusement, for he had laid down his knife and fork and shook a good deal with internal chuckling as he gazed upwards. One would suppose now, he said softly, that it had recently seen its father and mother and all its brothers and sisters removed by a violent death or sold into slavery. Ha! they never see that, said Harold. The brutes may fight and kill, but they never enslave each other. It is the proud prerogative of man to do that. That's true, sir, worse luck, as Patty says, rejoined Disco. But look there, what's them curious things round the creeter's waist? A pair of the wary smallest hands, and, hallo, a face no bigger than a button. I do believe that it's... Disco did not finish the sentence, but he was right. The small, melancholy monkey was a mother. Probably that was the cause of its sorrow. It is a touching thought that anxiety for its tiny offspring perhaps had furrowed that monkey's visage with the wrinkles of premature old age. That danger threatened it on every side was obvious, for no sooner had it taken up its new position after its unceremonious ejection by the fierce monkey than the sprightly monkey before referred to conceived a plot which it immediately proceeded to carry into execution. 
observing that the tail of the sad one hung down in a clear space below the branch on which it sat the sprightly fellow quickly but with intense caution and silence crept towards it and when within a yard or so sprang into the air and caught the tail a wild shriek and what disco styled a scrimmage ensued during which the mother monkey gave chase to him of the lively visage using her arms legs and tail promiscuously to grasp and hold on to branches and leaving her extremely little one to look out for itself this it seemed quite capable of doing for no limpet ever stuck to a solid rock with greater tenacity than did that infant to the maternal waist throughout the chase the hubbub appeared to startle the whole monkey race revealing the fact that troops of other monkeys had unobserved been gazing at the strangers in silent wonder since the time of their landing pleasant however though this state of things undeniably was it could not be expected to last breakfast being concluded it became necessary that disco should tear himself from the spot which having first solaced himself with a pipe he did with a good grace remarking as he re-embarked and took the helm of his canoe that he had got more powerful surprises that morning than he had ever before experienced in any previous twelve months of his life before long he received many more surprises especially one of a very different and much less pleasant nature on account of which will be found in the next chapter end of chapter five recording by tom weiss tom's audiobooks dot com